Real quick before we start the show, just wanted to let you guys know you can get the show two days early by joining our Patreon. Even for a buck, you can listen to the show two days early. Go to patreon.com slash analog talk and we got a bunch of stuff over there. Check it out and uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Analog Talk, a film photography podcast. I'm your host, Tim. I'm Chris. And on today's show, we have Ed Templeton. Hey, Ed. Woo. Hi, Ed. Hello, how are you? We're good. Thank you so much for joining. We're very excited to have you, and I know a lot of our listeners are as well. So, yeah, yeah. Um, before we get into your story and all that, do you mind giving our listeners who may not know you a background on who you are and how you got into photography? Who I am? Wow. Uh, mm, yeah. Deep. Who Who are you? <laughs> That's a deep question. <laughs> well, I'm just a regular dude, but um, I wear a lot of different hats. So I spent the majority of my life as a pro skateboarder. Starting at 18 years old, I became a professional skateboarder. Also, starting at 18 years old, I started painting. And a couple years after that, this was 1990 when I turned 18. Mm-hmm. A couple years after that, around 94, I took up photography in a serious way. So I had been shooting photos, but not anything I would consider serious until around 94 is when I had that epiphany of let's document this life I get to live as a pro skateboarder. Yeah. That was the first the first step. I started a company called Toy Machine, blood sucking skateboard company. And uh that was in ninety three. So I've been kind of juggling those things mostly uh company running a company being an artist, a painter and a photographer and a pro skateboarder up until 2012 when I at age 40 I broke my leg really badly, mm. compound fracture, my tibia mm. and fibula and a kind of decided that maybe that's that's it and <laughs> decided to stop <laughs> at least trying to I, I can still skate and I do once in a while but I don't do it on a professional level at all and I just roll around and skate curves and fun small banks and things yeah I was curious about that if you were still I, I didn't realize it was 2012 I didn't realize it was mm. that long ago you broke your leg Man. yeah it's been a while now time flies geez so I guess that's the the broad strokes of who I who I am or what I do um yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I didn't realize, too, that you started painting that early, too. I mean, I guess that makes sense since you were doing graphics and stuff for your boards. All of it came from skateboarding, really. I mean, I, I started skating, which immediately put me, you know, pre-skating, I was literally just a dork. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> Same. Yeah, yeah. Just a kid who would just, you know, I was like, I thought I might become a ninja or something. You know, it's like I was, you know, into ninja movies and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh. You know, yeah, then I found skating and suddenly I was just immersed in a world. Like suddenly the scary punk kids were like, hey, you got a skateboard? Come hang out with us. Here's a punk. Like, so the world just opened up. Punk music, skateboarders, all of them are doing like making zines and doing making flyers for shows. They're in bands, they're doing art. So I just kind of fell into that sort of group. And any creativity I have was definitely fostered or, or pulled out from the fact that I was just surrounded by these creative types. Yeah. It all came from skateboarding. Yeah. yeah. So then through skateboarding, I got sent to Europe. Oh, wow. When I was right when I turned 18, I basically left high school with three months left. Oh, no way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was like on course to graduate. I wasn't a great student, but, you know, just like scraping by. <laughs> 
but then yeah it was just kind of one of those things where it's like okay go to europe or finish school it's like this might be my only chance to go to europe right i went to europe did these skate contests and just came back from that trip being originally a relatively sheltered orange county kid who hadn't seen a lot although i knew through my grandparents about the world they had taken me on a trip to washington dc and like yeah they were the people who really planted the seed of creativity in me, took me to museums and stuff like that. So I was aware of like how precious a trip to Europe might be. And as a really poor kid, I kind of thought this might be my only chance. So yeah, that trip really catalyzed a bunch of stuff inside of me. Um, coming back from that trip was when I declared I'll become a painter. You know, I like mm. was that young and naive where I was just like so inspired by the art in Europe and the way the history, you know, Orange County's like the youngest part of America, you know, it's right. like, yeah. as the yeah, westward yeah. expansion happened, uh-huh. you know, Orange County was like the wild west. And then you get to this, you know, you get to European cities and of course it's, you know, built on these, you know, I'm standing in a building that is, was here before just America was discovered. Isn't that crazy? Around yeah, that that's time, nuts. You know? So yeah, I think that I just came back super inspired and thought, that's it. I will be a painter. Like, <laughs> And I started, you know, just going for it. I started painting. I'm really shitty, of course. But uh, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like the first, you got to take that first step and you got to have a little bit of delusion to just <laughs> trudge, trudge forward, I guess. Now, is that the, the trip where you like win every contest that you enter and is that the is that the same trip or that was 1990 yeah so yeah it was a very pivotal year i you know left left high school never to look back i thought oh i'll come back and finish those three months and then a couple years later i'm like oh maybe i'll get my gd and i said yeah i can start a company i'm just i'm just going for it you know wow and uh yeah i mean i don't recommend that to kids actually (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) i think i'm someone who has always been curious and and kind of like a self-learner and reading and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, it's not like a point of pride. Like I'm a high school dropout. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But um, so that year, yeah, 1990 was very pivotal. I, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It sounds braggadocious, but um, I did win every contest. (laughs) No, man, let it out. You won. (laughs) Earlier that year, I had been on a, a super massive tour in the U.S. with another pro skateboarder, Mike Valley. So I'm 18 years old. I go on this insane tour with Mike Valley, writing for, I wrote for New Deal, this company, New Deal. He wrote for World Industries at the time, but he was doing his own operation. So he's just like, I'm going on a tour. I'm picking the people I want to go with, even if they don't ride for World Industries. So it was kind of like a weird, just yeah, album tour. It was like mm. different people. It was uh, also Chris Pastris and Felix Arguez was, was on that tour. It was just literally the four of us. Steve Barrett was on for like a hot set, hot, middle part of it yeah and uh that i credit that tour with how i was able to win those contests because when you're on tour i mean it was something like 30 demos in 30 days so Mm -hmm. it wasn't like a relaxing tour it was like drop you know skate a demo for two hours until you drop dead jeez (laughs) sign autographs another two hours after that and then get in a van and drive five hours to another city you know sleep wake up do the same thing literally every day and so by the end of the 30-day tour if you're not hurt you're basically a road warrior yeah (laughs) yeah any obstacle course we hit i had my go-to moves totally trained up at that point Mm -hmm. and a lot of times on the u.s tours we would you know be skating like a gravel parking lot with a couple jump ramps and stuff so then you get to like 
a European contest with a, a professionally made course with big hips and rails and all this stuff. And so like, I was just like, I couldn't fall off. That's how, I mean, that's why I won. Man. Yeah. Like this is easy. <laughs> you know, it's and consistency is, I mean, contests now are a lot different. The ones you see on TV now are kind of like these best trick things where guys just throw themselves down this one huge obstacle. Mm-hmm. But back in obviously those earlier days in the early nineties, it was about stringing a whole run together. So consistency was really important. And, and I think because of the, that tour, I was just, you couldn't get me off my board. I could just, I could go for two minutes straight and just wow. string a bunch of tricks together. So I think that's, that's what it was. And there was a little bit of new school versus old school happening. Like, you know, some of the older guys had been the old guard was kind of fading out a little bit. Mm. I represented like the new crop of young kids coming up doing different tricks. Obviously, like, you know, it was like Christian Asoy doing a big air. And then my my generation comes along and we're doing like one foot ollie to board slide and, you know, skating the rail and doing kickflips and stuff like that. So it was a little different. That's so crazy, though, that you were you were right there, like at the beginning of the trend, you know, when everything kind of changed, when it was like gnarly surfing on the skateboard to now you guys are doing rails and stairs. And, and it's just wild to think that because I I started skating, I think it was 93. I'm a little bit younger than you, so I I just remember watching old skate videos of people just like surfing around and doing swimming pools and stuff like that and then not to be like everybody else I had a best friend that brought welcome to hell over and it just like changed everything I had no idea that that world existed just seeing how gnarly (laughs) skateboarding was it was like oh wow you can do that like what yeah yeah that ended up being a landmark video which was kind of crazy oh dude Mm. Yeah, timing and luck is a big part of my life. Mm. I just feel like I was born in, in California at this particular time and just sort of fell into a bunch of stuff. And I don't know how. Look, Looking back, I'm about to turn 50 this year. Wow. And uh, yeah, looking back, it's just like, how did all this happen? Like, you don't really control a lot of it. It's just, you're just kind of like a cog in the machine. You just like, I was just literally, bo- I don't have control over where I was born. Mm-hmm. Here I am mm-hmm. in California, mm-hmm. in Huntington Beach, which is like a surfing and skating community. So chances are I was going to do one of those things as a kid and so i was skating and then another chance thing is that the industry happens to be here the skating right. industry, so the chances yeah. that if i had any talent that i would get noticed was pretty good so i did you know i did get noticed you know and then, yeah, then just the luck of having escaped most a lot of major injuries like a lot you know a lot of guys are so great and they but they blow out their knee or something so i was able to span this entire period of time and have literally two peaks you know and that like to have a peak in 1990 at the beginning and then kind of have another one in the in the early 2000s or late you know late 90s was yeah very fortunate for me and uh you know kept me kept me going in this uh rough and tumble world like the first half of my career wasn't you know we didn't jump down stuff as much so if i had started <laughs> if i had started a little bit later then you know the guys now are jumping down massive things and their, mm-hmm. their knees don't last quite as long i I got to skate through the first half, the first peak without killing myself, really. Yeah, skateboarding looks so crazy now. I mean, I, again, like you said, I mean, I probably just cruise down the street every once in a while and pop a couple ollies and I feel good about it being, you know, 41. (laughs) But then you see these guys just doing stuff that is, I mean, it's video. I mean, it looks like a video game. It is a video game. It is a video game. (laughs) One of of our AM writers just came out with a video part yesterday, Braden Hoban for America. And I just... I mean, I sponsored the guy. I sponsored the yeah. guy, so I know how good he is. But it's like I was just holy crap. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really, it literally looks like a video game. I don't even understand it anymore. Man, 
But I mean, it, and it's only going to keep going. It's only going to just like keep getting crazier mm-hmm. and crazier. Yeah. Yeah. The kids are bionic now. But yeah, that shows your age when you're just like, these kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had one of those moments the other day that these kids were at a stoplight and I was walking down to work and the, the music they were playing, I was like, kids listen to this? And, <laughs> and, and I was like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> I'm getting old. What's crazy to me is um when you, like that whole scene, you know, the skating in California and all that, like everybody's shooting like on VHS and, you know, film photography and and to to think that you were making those videos on VHS is like I was watching some footage earlier and I was like how how what are you on skateboards following people on skateboards I must that must have been what the trick right? oh yeah 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 I mean the er, the first the first video I was in a New Deal fifteen minute promo it was called I think yeah I mean also it was just one or two days mm. I, I remember yeah. getting a call from Paul Schmidt who ran ran the company he said hey we're coming to film your part tomorrow. And it was just that's your video part. Whatever you could do in that time that they were there, that one day. Wow. I mean, now they, you know, we save up tricks over a, a year or two, mm. and uh, you know, edit together this thing that's a compilation of everything you've, every great thing you've done over two years. And that video that I did was literally a day. I think they might have came for like a part of another day, so it was like <laughs> two days, two little sessions. Basically, was my whole entire skate part, and it's like a. A fully grown man following an 18 year old with <laughs> one of those giant DHS, you know, beta yeah. things. But it quickly evolved. I mean, then it turned into like, yeah, digital digital video tapes and a, or you know, yeah, height video first. Yeah, yeah. Then yep. digital tapes and now yeah, iPhones. just it goes onto a hard drive. It's like people, you know, doing on their iPhones now. It's crazy. Yeah. Even yeah. the first video. I mean, Deanna, my wife Deanna, filmed me on her roller skates in a couple clips. Oh, I love that. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Man, so when did you start getting into I mean, I do you you do zines and stuff like that, right? Because we we talk about that a lot on the show of like putting together zines and books and and I mean I think I have like three or four of your photo books. When did when did you start like compiling everything? When did it start to make sense to, you know, start showing this stuff off that you've been collecting? I think it was two things, both one was I was kind of the the skaters that I was around were particularly artsy and cool. And so zine culture, especially in my group of people, was really cool. Mm. I befriended a lot of the photographers that would be shooting me for skateboard magazines. Yeah. And so the guys who did that were the kind of people who were like making, you know, they were like on the backside of a magazine, like creating a magazine, editing, doing interviews. So they're the creative types. I found myself drawn to those guys. And so I credit both the zine question you're asking and then like even just discovering photography as a whole. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Because my job was to skate and get photographed. I mean, I said it before. I mean, now it's really about video. But back in like obviously in the early 90s, it was just photographs were the, was mm-hmm. the currency of a pro skater. It's like, is this guy doing a good job? Is Does he have a photo in Thrasher this month? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Transworld? Then he's doing good. And that's all we had to do. I mean, I had like my main job was just like make sure you're in Thrasher or Transworld this month. Wow. And to do that, I had to go out and skate. And like, I mean, the early ones were like photographers would would just find out about a session. I wasn't even calling them or anything like that. They would just show up because they knew something was happening. And like, then you would just maybe get a shot in a magazine. Then it kind of turned into like, okay, I I know these guys. So hey, like, let's they we'd make a you know sort of a let's go skate yeah they would film they would uh shoot photographs so i think through that i realized 
especially one guy, Christian Klein. I mean, he was just a zine guy. He was like trading zines. He was into music. So and music, the punk music scene was like a lot of fanzines where they would, mm. you know, yeah, trade trade zines. You know, you could look in the back of certain magazines. Like a Thrasher used to do a little uh, article on zines. But like Maximum Rock and Roll magazine would have oh, man. these yeah. ads at the back where you could, you know, trade zines with people. Basically, it was like, if you send me a zine, I'll send you a zine or, or send a dollar and I'll send you a zine. And these people, you know, in anywhere all over the world were just making zines. And so that that culture was something I got exposed to and thought it was so cool. Yeah. And it wasn't about photography. It was mostly just like drawings and interviews and like yeah. comics and stuff like that, like random little things. And then my friend Thomas Campbell saw me saw that I was painting but putting the paintings in the closet when I was finished (laughs) yeah he he scolded me he was just like what are you doing putting your paintings in the closet like they're supposed to be seen by people get them out there you know so give them to your friends that's what you do so then I kind of like it hit me like oh like that's the whole zine culture like you should share share your work and I remember reading a quote and I tell kids this all the time it's just like you know if if you don't send a ship out yours will never come in oh that's wow yeah and so you know it's just it was just like in the culture, in the in the spirit of the zine culture I was exposed to, it was just like, you know what? I want to make a zine. You know, it'll be fun. And you just, so you compile a bunch of drawings and photographs and random crap and you kind of make a collage and then you take it to Kinko's and make it. And then I would just, so I'd make like a hundred zines and then I would just send them to people Wow, for free, you know, just like people, I, I'd just get people's addresses and send them. So I would just spray out these zines and it wasn't for sale. It was like a thing. I would just go, okay, here's a and who knows how many of those exactly exist anymore. It's like yeah. I saved a copy or two, but you know, there might be like a few random friends who actually saved them from then. I, most of them probably ended up in the trash. Oh, that's such a bummer. <laughs> but that, you know, so that, so I would do that in the late, late nineties, I guess, or mid, yeah. Early nineties. Yeah. I mean, that was just, I don't know. That That's where that came from. And then photography came, especially from those guys too, because it, since I'm hanging around them, I was just interested in like, Oh, how does this work? Like you start wondering like, how, how do you do your job? You know, yeah, like yeah. you're <laughs> supposed to be shooting me, but I'm just wondering how you do it. And like, yeah. you know, I'm wasting all this film. We would try to shoot a sequence for instance. And you know, my friend Christian would be like, unless you've done this, like I remember wasting a whole brick of Tri-X, <laughs> like a 20 pack of it. Hey. Um, trying to get a trick he was shooting a sequence and when we were done it was like you know i didn't get the trick and he's just like well i ran out of film we can't we have to come wow. back but he's just like i'm not ever gonna shoot you again unless you can already do the trick like, you, have, <laughs> oh. you have to prove to me you can do it first because i was trying to learn it basically on film and uh i mean nowadays that would be so expensive but yeah we oh. oh i know but i was interested in what so you know i remember asking like my friend christian and then there's another guy mickey vukovic who shot for Transworld magazine and Christian show, shot for Power Edge magazine. And both those guys, I would just ask them about what's the aperture. And Mickey's like, especially this kind of guy who just is such a machine head. So all it took was one question. I said, how does, how does this work? Like how does aperture and what is aperture and shutter mm. speed? And then he would just, he sat down and just broke everything down. Wow. And I, like to this day, that's like still my, my, my basis. Like you're to go to stuff yeah. he told me is like the stuff I just know now from being taught by one person like wow. 40 years ago, whenever that was uh, 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. So I, that's, that's how it started. And I think, like I said, it wasn't until 93, 94 that my, I had the epiphany of like, wow, I'm traveling the world, hanging out with these like insane people doing insane things, you know, living kind of like a hard and fast life. And I should be documenting this, you know, that's kind of where I, and that, that corresponded with, 
seeing for the first time a couple of photo books, also by my friend Thomas Campbell. He was going on a, a trip to Morocco. He used to go on these insane trips where he would sell all of his belongings and oh, like disappear in Morocco on a surf trip camping. And then he would like make a deal with a hotel, <laughs> you know, a hotel like I'll paint a mural for you if you give me a room for a few days. And then he would like, or for a month and he would paint the mural, get the free room for a month, use that room to paint. And then come back, you know, go to Paris and have an exhibition with all those paintings and then make enough Jeez. money to come back to the States. It was like such a cool life he was Man. doing. Yeah. I, yeah. I wish my mind worked that way. I know, I'm just, right? I'm never that clever. <laughs> I, don't it, I don't know if it could work that way. I don't think you can like run that anymore. Yeah. You know, it's right. crazy. Like in the early, in those early nineties, he could do that because he would just, yeah. Imagine just going up to a hotelier and saying, give me a room for a month. I'll paint you a mural. And I don't <laughs> yeah. know your art. Like they're just like, sure, that sounds cool. Let's do it. Like, <laughs> Insane. Now everything's so chainified. Like you know, who do you yeah. talk to? Days in corporate, right? Right. <laughs> See right, if they right, wanna... right. I mean, I guess in Morocco it's probably different. But um, anyway, Thomas was going on one of his trips to Morocco, and he had some books, and he's just like, "Hey, I see that you've started buying some art books, Ed." And I had like a couple random books on Egon Schiele or like Picasso or whatever. He's like, "Well, you hold these for me. I'm I'm gonna go away. You take care of them." And one of them was Teenage Lust by Larry Clark, mm. and one was The Ballad of Sexual Dependency by Nan Golden. Oh, I, I have that. I own that. That's a good Both one. Both those books were just like, wow, okay. Yeah. You were saying you saw Welcome to Hell and we're like, whoa, this is possible. I saw those books and kind of like, wow, like, you know, obviously mm. the gritty nature of them and like a little bit of, well, in Teenage Less Case, a lot of nudity. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, like the, the edginess of it was just kind of like, wow, this is shocking. But at the core of it, it was two people who shot their own world. You know, I had, I had been familiar with Kari Bersan and like, you know, some of the greats kind of thing, uh, the Magnum people, for instance, but, mm-hmm. it, but that seemed like they were documenting the world at large, like go to China and shoot some yeah. event or, some, or go to war and shoot, shoot war. This was like, took it right to home. Right. This is just, Dan Golden is shooting her friends in New York and, right. and the love lives are going through. Larry Clark is in Tulsa shooting druggies and, yeah. and yeah. Know, dropouts and uh, petty criminals and whatnot. And that's just what that's, that, that's for me when I had the epiphany. I mean, I, a lot of things were happening at the same time, but I, you know, if I try to like condense it into like, these are the main mm-hmm. things that was part of it. Cause also at the same time, I was friends with this guy, Tobin Yelland, who's a skate photographer, skateboard photographer who was shooting also for the magazines. And he had, he, unbeknownst to me, he had taken a class, a workshop with Larry Clark. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so he, was ex- he was exposed to Larry Clark and he knew Larry Clark and his, and Tobin's own photos had a, a great feel of like he was documenting the skate scene in San Francisco wow. at the time. And his cast of characters was like Andy Roy and John Cardiel. And he's got these iconic photos of those guys yeah. that are still yet to be like fully published in book form. I'm, I'm shocked to say. But wow, I would love to see that stuff. His body of work. I mean, there's been attempts to get it into book form, but it, every, somehow something always happens. Mm. I think at some point we'll see this Tobin Yellen book. <laughs> I hope so. He's yeah. a legend, man. But you know, so the his photos are also really influential and, and so that's all that happened at the same time it's like seeing tobin's work and larry's and nan's and then realizing like okay well i'm, I'm gonna shoot my own life too and it's mm. different i'm like i wasn't worried about copying them because you know i'm not around petty criminals and heroin addicts right and i'm not around like the cool new york gay you know culture yeah, yeah. nightclub culture that nan was part of and even tobin it's like tobin is in san francisco shooting his cast of characters i'm 
down in Southern California and I'm traveling the world as, as a pro skater myself. So I was like, yeah. you know, what better position to be from the inside out? Like I'm actually living the life. I'm going to start taking the cam- camera and shooting, you know, I tell people, I mean, you get, I hope I'm not repeating myself too much. Just, <laughs> I feel like I tell this story a lot, but you know, I joke and yeah. say like, what if Robert Plant was a documentary photographer? Right. You hear about these insane parties and shenanigans driving cars into pools at hotels mm-hmm. yes and zeppelin did on tour yeah. it's like what if what if robert plant was shooting that from from the position he, he was in the catbird seat you know that's so that's what i kind of that was my little mini epiphany it was just like I, I that's it i'm gonna document this life and like from that point on i like was completely dedicated to carrying a camera yeah at all times it started out being a canon e1 then i sort of made enough money to like buy a like a cl Mm. So I had this weird Leica CL, which is like a weird step like down of the Leica. Yeah, it's like a yeah. Minolta yeah, yeah. Leica. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, technically a Leica, but yeah, sort of made by Minolta, right? Yes, still a great camera. Yeah, but a rangefinder that that you know kind of broke, I think, and then I lent it to Thomas Campbell, who really broke it, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that got broken. <laughs> You know, and then, yeah, then I started, then I bought a Leica M6 and started using that. And it was funny because at the time it felt weird because it's like those early 90s or mid 90s into the 2000s was like really like Ryan McGinley was really popular and this whole point and shoot aesthetic. Mm-hmm. A lot of the New York kind of kids were shooting the party scene in New York with point and shoot. And it was like really lo-fi kind of thing. But I always didn't like that idea mm. but if you're like in these insane situations which a lot of those like photos were like especially if you look at like dash snow or ryan mcginley or patrick odell's work you know they were in like some crazy situations visually but a lot of times they were also drunk too so that's that was part of it you know so they yeah, were like yeah, wasted yeah. Too, and like so the, they, the photos they needed this, a like, point and shoot yeah right <laughs> yeah the photos have this lo-fi feel like out of focus off kilter kind of thing and it's like and that's the aesthetic and i think they were going for but i always saw it as like how are you there and like not shooting with a good camera like really yeah. so it's like i wanted to be in those situations but then approach it as if as cardio brisson might you know it's like i want to get a sharp right. well-composed black and white photo that works as a photograph as a as a composition you know that's that would be my ideal so that's that's kind of what i wanted to do i just was like i'm gonna shoot i'm gonna document skateboarding and the life of a skateboarder from this position and try to do it seriously like you know as if i was a magnum photographer kind of thing that makes so much sense yeah because now that you say that just because i was flipping through the books i have of yours and i was like you don't have that like blurry party aesthetic that you know usually comes from that time frame you know Mm -hmm. your photos are sharp and concise i like I didn't realize that until you said that right there. That's that makes so much more sense now. Yeah, it's just like a school of thought. I just I just like the people I liked and wanted to mimic, I guess, you know, or like wanted to emulate were the, were these like amazing photographers like Cardi Brisson and then Winogrand and all these like Yeah, you know, oh, Davidson, all these all the <clears throat> great street photographers like mm-hmm. that's the stuff i want i you know i wanted my stuff to look like that so in a way i was kind of like keeping a foot planted in the past which is you know some weird i wasn't maybe pushing the conversation forward visually but um but that's just what i wanted to do i wanted to document it in a serious way and then i think once you decide to carry a camera that seriously so it was like you know never leave the house right never Right. Never go, never do anything without having the camera on you. Then it becomes an obsession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we know yeah. all about that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And there's a fire there that kind of just burns and like everything becomes potential photography material. Mm-hmm. So it quickly 
branched away from not, not, a, not, I mean, that was one thing I was focused on was the skateboard life, but it really quickly opened up to like en- encompass everything. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, getting to travel the world. So that means I'm in Europe or, you know, Paris for a week doing a contest. Mm-hmm. Every free moment outside of the contest situation, practicing and then doing the contest on the weekend, all the walks to and from the hotel or to the, subway or whatever to like get from point a to point b all the dinner time at at night all the off days was just like walking around shooting photos i love that documenting the world uh because i get to be there i get to be in paris for this time period or especially the u.s i mean i'm working on a book now the finally i mean finally the book of this work will finally come out this year we can talk about that yeah 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 i was gonna it's one of the questions i had for you too yeah but part of it is uh part of the book is i'm including maps oh Oh, smart and drawn maps of the tours some of the maps i had already drawn in my sketchbook at the time and other ones i started like finding some of the old uh we had this like, I mean, in the early days, it was like a stack of paper stapled together with like map quest instructions. Yeah. This is pre cell phone. So, you yeah. know, like I have a trucker's atlas and a bunch of shitty map quest things that uh, like a more than often did not work properly. And so I had to like, <laughs> find or call the shop and be like, I'm here. How, get me, tell me how to, you know, and we're talking at a payphone. So I like pull over and stop at a payphone, call a shop, be like, I'm lost. Tell me how to get to your shop. That that stuff happened a lot. So I'm including the maps. So yeah, I'm trying to include the maps just to sh- to show the viewer of this book of this work how much road hours were put yeah. in. You know, it's like how much you know. So every year from 1990, you know, until 2012, I basically drove across the wow. United States wow. and back sometimes twice. Man. So I, I you know I joke around with like I poke fun at Robert Frank doing these like you know the famous Americans mm-hmm. they do, like kind of like two different loops around the US. It's like my you know if you scribbled my line across the US it would be <laughs> like you know every state wow twice twice a year almost you know so a lot of a lot of, a lot of road miles and on that you know like so I'm not only shooting skating but also shooting kind of America. Mm as a whole um which is maybe another book in the future of like all the work god i can only imagine how many negatives you have i was just gonna say like there must be like millions and millions and millions <laughs> i don't think it's in the millions but it's i mean it's, there's a lot and you know it's um and not all of it is that great either you know it's like i get like i don't want to like uh give the impression that i have all this genius work that's yet to be published but there is there is something there. I mean, for sure, there's something. Uh, there's a story to be told. It's never as good as you hope it would be. Mm. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> but also looking back, you find things that at the moment you didn't think were that good, but in retrospect are kind of do kind of capture a moment. I love when that happens. That's like one of my favorite things. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a good feeling. I mean, Deanna's so funny. She has two of her albums in her archive are labeled crap book. That book one and two where she was so like embarrassed of the work that she like separated it out and put it in the book saying like I don't I don't want people to ever see this stuff. But then mm-hmm. of course, like we we're just talking about, she's gone back through them and found a bunch of photos that she yeah. would use yes. now. That's so funny. That at one moment she thought like I don't want anyone to ever see them. Mm-hmm. Like she was probably gonna throw them away and I made her put them in I'm like save oh, those for sure. Good save. It's so funny how we we I feel like we all we've talked about that on the show a lot too. Like once you step away from work, whether it's 
it's like for a day or 20, 20 years, you know, when, you, when you're like, wait a minute, this is, this is, I actually like this now. Yeah. It's so funny. That's been a big part of a couple of my books. Um, Deformer was the first one where it was supposed to be published by Grable Press. They're the same people that did uh, Joseph Sabo's teenage book. And um, they kind of went out of business right at the moment that my book was going to be published. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> they, well, they helped broker a deal at Rizzoli. So then suddenly Deformer was going from Grable. It was going to be a Rizzoli book. And it got all the way to the point. I mean, it was like all the way to the deadline, like right to the wire. And we were at the lawyer phase where they were like, because Rizzoli is a huge company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I had this thing where they had a book dummy on their end and I had a book dummy on my end. And I had to get on this call with the lawyers, one of the Rizzoli lawyers, and go page by page through it on, over the phone with them. You know, page one, what's happening in this photo? Because mm. it was like, they were worried about getting sued, you know? Mm. And there's like a kid oh. and stuff like that. And so, you know, I had to explain like, this was in public. And they're like, was it festive? You know, like... I'm like, wow. oh, yeah, it was like at in a park or something. And like, they're like, okay, that we can check that off. And it really, so we did that through every photo of the book to see like what, what was public and what was private and what is possibly suitable or not. Yeah. Because I don't have model releases. I was going to, yeah. I just shoot, you know, I'm like out there shooting in the right. streets and like getting photos and like walking away kind of thing. So I don't. Yeah, I don't, a lot of times I don't know or have connections to the people I'm shooting. And that was the big concern. And it, it, so it boiled down to like two or three photos. One was like some kids smoking some cigarettes in a park. It was like an enclosed park. There was trees around and stuff like that. And they got really worried, like, okay, these kids are underage. Their parents are going to see this book Ugh. and go, like, why is my kid in this book? Yeah. And there's, like, nudity elsewhere in the book. So they were really worried about that. And I was starting to get, like, I don't know if I, like, want to pull these yeah. photos. Almost on principle, you know? Like, right. I, I don't think it would hurt the book to take them out because there's so many other photos in that mm -hmm. book. It's, like, it wasn't, like, they weren't instrumental. But I was kind of, like, on principle, I was, like, eh, I don't This is my work, and so I want to show it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel uneasy about this. Like, and at that, right at that moment, Aaron Rose came to me and said, I just, like, got a deal with Damagnani to do, like, a four-book deal. And Aaron Rose is the person who did uh, Beautiful Losers. Yes. The exhibition and the film. Such a good film. So he, you know, I think they had come to him, like, you know, you have all these people you're connected with. So he had, he did a Ari Markopoulos book. He did a Mike Mills book. He did a Barry McGee book. So he kind of went down the line of the, a lot of the Beautiful Losers people. And so he said, why don't you just do do this book with Damiani and you don't have to do like you know they're they're based in Italy and they pretty much don't give a flying fuck right oh, they don't beautiful yeah, exactly yeah. Well, who's in the, who's <laughs> in it or they're not worried about getting sued kind of thing so yeah I was like all right I'll just do it there so I was able to do like a, an unedited book with Damiani instead man you have like the best luck <laughs> <laughs> just listening to your story I'm just like man win 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 that was really lucky that was weird and uh but the point of the story was that um the time because it stalled from Grable and then it went all the way to this one another point with Rizzoli. Then the Damiani one pushed it back to another date. I had all this crazy time to think about this body of work mm -hmm. and what the book should look like. Looking back still, it's like has too much in it. And there's probably like three different books in there <laughs> that I probably like it, it, in my current state, I would have like made more concise, maybe three different books out of the idea. Right. Yeah, yeah. Book. But, you know, it is what it is. And, like, I think that, it, yeah, it, it's there. Wow, yeah, so it was the time. And then the okay. second one was the new one, Wires Crossed. I've had so much time. I've been working on this book since I started. I mean, like like I said, it started in 94. I think by 95, in my head, I was like, this is a book. I'm working on a book. And I've been basically working on this book mentally 
for my entire career as a photographer. Mm, yeah. Now for the last, you know, five years, I've actually had a layout that I've been tweaking and, you know, and so it's not even getting published till later this year and it's already like done. I'm just doing tweaks now. I'm like updating wow. things. I'm like finding new excerpts for my diary to put in there. Uh, you know, so yeah, I have all this time to like sit up and I've gone long stretches where I look away to your point, Chris, um, where I've just stepped away for like almost half a year kind of thing mm-hmm. and then come back to it and went like, what is this book? Oh my God. Like I'll change literally everything now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh-oh. it's a great feeling to be detached. Cause at first you're like, once you get it to a point, you're like really scared to like move something, uh-huh. change it. But then when you take that, that rest, you come back and it's like, Oh, now I'm like less, I'm less um, invested in it. And I don't mind like moving this page over here mm-hmm. and changing this. Cause it's like, yeah, it takes that. And I, so I recommend that to younger people all the time. Like, you know, the longer time you get to like digest the work mm-hmm. and edit it and make it more concise is is better. You mentioned the fo- the photos that were that they were worried about getting you know in trouble for was the kissing teenagers or smoking teenagers. The smoking just, teenagers. Yeah. yeah, I just love that that series of of your work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that came about. I would skate the Huntington Beach skate park every day, and it's right. It was right by the high school. They bulldoze it since, but um, oh. I'd skate there i skate there every day and then like school would get out and inevitably like you know the damaged kids would collect at the skate park (laughs) i was one of those (laughs) (laughs) they'd hang out there and it was like you know i'm like you know i'm a full adult i'm like yeah what am i like in my 20s mid 20s or something and these are like you know 17 year old kids yeah 16 17 and uh and one day i just thought i'm gonna bring a polaroid camera and set it down on the wall next you know by the park and i'm skating around and then like the kids inevitably came and i just started asking them to you know can i shoot a photo of you inhaling a cigarette and it's so funny because most of them would just be like okay weird guy like yeah (laughs) yeah like they didn't really question it no one was like i mean this is before i mean i think nowadays people would be very circumspect mm-hmm. about everything. But um, yeah, back then, I think they just liked the attention. It was like, sure. And then it was a Polaroid so they could see it. You know, I yeah. just be like, oh, there it is. But I'm keeping it. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so the core of that book, Teenage Smokers, was was those Polaroids. Like a, a bunch of them were Polaroids. And aside from that little thing that I did, like, I don't think I was really thinking of it as a series. I was going to ask you, yeah, did it start out with like, I'm going to make this a body of work or is it just kind of like a thing you did that turned into that after? It was like sort of, it's sort of that. It's like I did that thing, which made, means that at the time I probably thought, oh, this will be a, a bunch of cool photos yeah. like Polaroids. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I was thinking of it as a series until Aaron Rose saw the work and saw in the work, uh, in the other like 35 millimeter work, other photos of kids smoking. It wasn't until he said, man, you shoot a lot of kids smoking. You should do a series. Then it like really clicked in my head. It took him him to say that. So like subliminally, I was doing a series, but I don't think I really had it in on paper like that. Um, And then from that point until the book came out and and still now even, uh, Whenever I see like a young person smoking, I try to try to get a photo if I can. Um, oh, that's cool! I didn't realize you were still shooting it. That's that's cool. I still shoot it here and there. I mean, I I mean, I haven't done anything in the whole pandemic. Like photography mm-hmm. took a nosedive. Uh, but um, now now they're all vaping though. Yeah, there's a lot of vapors, <laughs> and I'm not interested. Like everyone yeah, asks me, like, cool. yeah. should you do a vaping? So I'm like, eh, I don't I don't really want to be around. Yeah. Vaping. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, um, also as a pro skateboarder on tour, inevitably like. The kids who come to see me skate were teenage smokers. So I was like literally forced in, like it was mm. such a, a, a series of convenience. Like 
it wasn't like I had to even search them out. It was just, they would like, they searched me out because <laughs> I yeah. like showed up in Des Moines, Iowa at a demo and to do a skate demo. And the kids who were asking for my autograph are literally like whatever percentage of them were teen smokers. So I would just shoot photos of them that way. Man. So good. I, just, I love like the just the imagery of all that stuff because it's like they think they're so grown, you know, and and they, <laughs> and, and they like look like little kids smoking cigarettes. Like, what am I looking yeah. at? It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I never <laughs> smoked a cigarette in my life, mm -hmm. and so, but I didn't want to like make the book pedantic in any way, or you know, I don't say it doesn't say anything in the book, yeah. but I feel like you get my point of view through the photographs anyway, which is what you're saying. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm kind of shocked too. I'm like, wow, this is like, you're so young and you're already like fucking your lungs up. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, in itself, there's a message there. That's kind of yeah. interesting. How did the uh, t teenage kissing series come about? Did that kind of piggyback off the teenage smoking? For sure. Yeah. 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 Again, I was like, I had a number of photos and I think that one, I realized this was a series, but I think it really crystallized when one of the photos mirrored the color of the cover of Teenage Smokers. Mm. And when I started messing around with like the idea of a book, I was like, holy crap, this cover looks exactly the same as the other cover. Because if you hold those two books side by side, it actually piggybacks completely. Like it's exactly the same size yeah, as Teenage cool. Smokers. They're both the same size. I had to like that font on Teenage Smokers, I created somehow. I don't know how I did it, but I, it's not like a real font. I like basically made it. Oh, cool. So I had to like also make teenage kissers out of that, out of like the weird pieces of that, of that font. I had to like take just the straight lines and like create a K and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that was a pain in the butt. But I mean, so I basically <laughs> copied the cover exactly. So yeah, side by side, it's like the same pink. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Pink title, same font essentially, and the photos are really close in coloring because it's like a flash at night for each of them. Now, was that like a similar time, or was that was there a pretty big time difference in those? There's a there's a crossover for sure in time and in uh, in similarity. I mean, same kind of thing. It's like I as a pro skater, no matter how old I get, like the mm -hmm. kids I'm skating for who come to the demos are like, you know, they range from like, you know, 12 to eight, yeah. 24 year old kind of kids who come to see me. So I was just around inevitably the demo would be over and I'd be kind of milling about and there'd be like some couple that came to watch us like making out in the corner and I would just be able to like go over and ask them for a kissing photo kind of thing. And they knew who I was. So it wasn't weird. They're like, oh, Ed Templeton wants her photo. Like, okay. yeah. Cool. And then a lot of them were on the fly too. I mean, they, you know, when I was, there's a bunch where I would just see my, my kind of run, walk, walk and shoot style. I would just walk by people kissing on the streets and get them and they never saw me. I did that once. Once I got a kissing picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's kind of nice. They're not paying attention at all. <laughs> in theory, yeah. In theory, they're like not as focused on what's happening around mm -hmm. them. So you can really get that photo. I mean, I've been caught a few times. <laughs> <laughs> Has it always been film with you? I, I remember mm. one time I... I I think I commented on one of your Instagram stories or posts or something and it was really cool. I was commenting on your frame lines in the picture and you're like, well, I shoot film and it's it's each photographer. You really gave like a really in-depth <laughs> reply mm. to my to my question. And I loved it. It was like, because I didn't realize it was about how you can kind of file out negative holder for an enlarger. Yeah. And how that became, and talking to like Grant Britton and stuff like mm -hmm. that when we had him on, you know, like that was 
was how that was like a like a, your signature was how you printed your photos kind of thing right. back then too and i mean did you ever was it always kind of just a film thing for you or did you ever dabble in the digital stuff i mean other than i i, I know you do some iphone stuff iPhone, with yeah. the mm-hmm. yeah yeah i've always been digital i mean i mean sorry uh film <laughs> always been strike that from the record uh, yeah 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 <laughs> i'm not anti at all though uh, yeah yeah neither are we I yeah mean, yeah, I just always shot film. I mean, and I just like it. And I kind of, it's one of those things where I just like want to stick to it, mm-hmm. especially as the world changes to digital, because then I feel like there's a something there that, you know, sets it apart a little bit. I don't know. There's, I'm sure like tons of people shoot film. And then, yeah, like obviously in the 90s and the 2000s, like a uh, heavily filed out neg carrier was <laughs> really like a popular. I've never been into like a fully filed out one. I'm down to have like a, very lightly filed out one yeah <laughs> uh, that's how mine is now yeah, yeah i'm down to see like a little bit of sprocket hole action but not not like yeah. over the top like check me out but also it's really funny like i think one time i like wandered onto a some photography forum online and came across this raging debate about <laughs> key lines oh god yeah and didn't realize that like like how touchy and sensitive love, everything is yeah i love the raging debates you guys probably are more like it's you know doing a podcast like this like i don't do a lot of like photography research like that mm. so but somehow i came across it and it was like wow like there's some serious vitriol from people who are like fucking people who show their frame lines or trying to show that show off that they yeah shot it's a film. flex you know, yeah and i should and like i compose in the camera check me out or whatever yeah, yeah. but in my head i'm like what's wrong with that like i don't even understand yeah. why that's a big deal it's like it's kind of cool to see like oh this is like uh this is a good yeah. photo you, yeah. have to copy, you know it was a debate in my head for wires cross do i show the key line or not because a lot of my other books i have shown the key line uh, okay but i think i decided not to for the most part although there's a lot there's a couple collages in the book so when i like print for a show a lot of times i'll leave the key lines in i don't know i'm all over the place now it, it goes either way i don't need to like prove it though that's mm. why i think i you know i think aesthetically it actually looks kind of better without the key lines it yeah now i don't know i'm part i like both honestly i just yeah. but i think it was just like a choice i just went okay i'm going no key lines on this one and i don't need to prove that i'm not cropping like it's just that's my own personal yeah. you know it's like i don't need yeah. to prove it as much but i have had that in the past i mean deformer i have a little statement in the back that says have you guys read that let me read it <laughs> it's kind of fun i like read it the other day to Deanna, and it made me laugh that I was like that interested in putting this in the book. <laughs> so there's a statement at the back. It says, In this digital age of computer tomfoolery, I find it of interest to disclose the methods used to make this book. All of the photographs photographs in this book were shot using either a Canon AE1, Leica M6, Polaroid Land camera, or an Olympus XA, except the older ephemeral ones and a few point-and-shoot ones. None are digital, none are cropped. No photographs were staged. <laughs> Aside from minor dust or scratches, on scans photoshop was not used to alter or make better photograph in any way yeah i mean this is 2008 and i felt like (laughs) this will be cool to have in there (laughs) (laughs) because i thought like oh you know there's there are people who would get really nerdy about that kind of stuff and are are interested and so i was like you know like if people want to know it's like okay here's here's my statement i guess of like how this book was made just so people know but now i feel like i wouldn't put that statement on just because it's like i don't need to prove to anyone right yeah not cropping and having said that it's like hey if there's like 
a branch sticking into my photo that I don't like and I don't have the key lines, I can just stretch that out of here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boop, boop. Not a big deal. <laughs> I think my mind got opened up a lot seeing the Robert Frank, um, Amer- the Americans, uh, or the, I don't forgot what the show was called. It was like a big, but it was a big retrospective that had a lot of stuff and they showed a lot of his proof sheets. And um, I mean, he's got photos that are horizontal that are cropped vertical. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, interesting. And they're in the book and I'm just like, wow, it's like, you know, if Robert Frank does it, I know, Jim Goldberg does whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I think I just relaxed myself and like I don't. You do what you want. <laughs> right. It's like it's like a good image is a good image. Yeah. Whatever which tells way. the story is your art and your photo, and that you know people can hate on it if they want, but that's that's like you. Yeah. Now, do you do? Is it is it more of like a digital scan, or do you actually make a physical print and then scan that mm. like with your work, or is it kind of a bit of both, or how does that normally work for your process? I've done both. I think I've landed on that a scan of the negative is probably the cleanest and clearest way to show okay. work in a book. But for instance, my book, Wayward Cognitions, and the book, Hair is a Defiance, for the most part, both those I decided ahead of time, like, I'm going to make prints. So Wayward is all prints that were scanned after the fact. Two things conspire against you when you're doing that. And, and also the fact that I chose an uncoated stock in that one, you know, mm. so it's like a double whammy myself going from a print, which inevitably is not going to be as clear as a negative scan. And then by nature, the print is a little muddier than yeah. obviously that digital, mm-hmm. the digital eye looking at the, the grain. And then the uncoated stock is another layer of muddiness. So when I look at that book now, I'm like, ah, oh, like I wish I had like cleared, cleaned up everything a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't think... It's just like a as a bookmaker, I don't think people who see it immediately go, oh, this is muddy or weird. But I, I see something that I know what the photo could look like. Right. And so it bothers me a little bit. But it's a choice. Yeah. So I've done that before because I like the idea of like, I'm going to make the print and the print is like, that's what I want to show. Yeah. How I how I print it. And um, now, so then tangentially parenthetical, that book is all negative scans, scans of the neg and then. Okay. All right. I do end up taking that scan, which usually comes back from the lab. The drum scan from the lab comes back sort of uh, neutral. And then in Photoshop, you do have to do some sort of things. But I try to like approach it. And I'm sure everyone else is in the same boat. But yeah, I try to approach it like as if I was in the dark room. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go extreme in any one direction. So that I guess in my head, I try to like look at it on the screen and go, I can I can actually do this in the dark room yeah before yeah. it works if it's like if it's so far past what i can do in the dark room then i get a little i get wary of that i try to approach it as if i was dodging and burning it, it is very easy to get a little out of control that's with what the i dials. mean yeah so it's real subtle <laughs> yeah. it's like okay i'll bring up a little bit of the darkness here i'll bring back a little of this hot spot here mm-hmm. but overall it's like the neg is the neg and so the contrast yeah. is mostly what you see from like if you were to see the raw drum scan and like the final one it's just like more contrast because they use the my lab ends up giving me this kind of neutral scan so I can kind of go up or down from there. When when did you find find yourself in a dark room? At what point did you like really immerse yourself in like the printing and developing and pretty early on actually. Yeah. Um, I've always lived in the suburbs, so I've always had the space. I had you know, as a pro skater, I was able to like get into a house pretty early as a relatively young person, you know, I was like Mm -hmm. in a a house. And so I dedicated one of my rooms in my first house to um, a dark room. It's awesome. Carpets got destroyed. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Been there. (laughs) Yeah. Carpet going through the whole house. And it's just like, and I actually did color in there. I did. I had like a tube system. That sucks doing the tube, of course, like I barely had good results from that. But then I found a lab that was in my area that 
primarily was used by Asian wedding photographers. <laughs> no art people went there at all. It was literally only wedding photographers who would go and make the prints for their clients. Yeah. And then I kind of like somehow discovered it and walked in there like this like random white kid. <laughs> they were like, I don't even think they wanted to like rent it to me. <laughs> they were like, no, no, no. But you know, money's money. So then I was like, and they had a, a color machine. It was amazing. Oh, it was like wow. a school or almost like a school style, you know? It's like, yeah, they had these like different rooms that you could rent. So I was doing color photos there for a while. Also, not very well. I don't think I've ever been a great color printer. But um, and then when we got into this new house, this I have a three car garage and one of the space, one of the car spaces. So I divided it into thirds and one of the spaces I built a dark room there right before we moved in. So, and then, yeah, this is at the time when people were ditching all their dark room equipment. So I was able to get a, I got a massive table sink. Oh, cool. For a hundred dollars. Oh, you know, like it's literally like probably at the and it's when it was first made, it was probably like multi thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, if you'll pick this up, please take it off her hands kind of thing. Wow. That's how I got all my darkroom stuff too. It was all just like, hey, I don't even know what this is. It was in my grandpa's attic. And I'm like, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> give it here, give uh, it here. Crazy. So yeah, I've, I've, pretty early on, I, th I guess, I think it might've been like 96 or seven. So only a couple of years after I started shooting, was I getting a darkroom set up? And uh, I just did, I literally bought the Henry Horenstein black and white photography book. I don't know <laughs> if you're familiar. I think it's like a pretty standard book in like photo 101 class. Yeah, yeah. And it has how to do everything. <laughs> how to like work your camera, how to set up a dark room. And I had like, so I'm learning like book learning style. No one told me anything. Like yeah. for instance, there was like the word pre-wet. It was uh -huh. like, pre-wet your print. And I was like, what is Pruitt? <laughs> I don't even know this Pruitt. word. What is, what is a Pruitt? Yeah. Pruitt, Pruitt your print? I don't know what a Pruitt is. Like, it, like that's how like, you know, because yeah. it was just like total book learning. I had no idea like that's what so I was, funny. what I was reading. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, I like learned that. I mean, I met Henry Hornstein and like, oh, wow. I told him this story. <laughs> I was just like, man, I like learned how to do printing from just reading your book. And he's just like, that's oh, I get great. That all the time. <laughs> oh, man, that's so cool. And he's like a super cool dude. Uh, Did you tell him the pre wet story? Pre -wet? <laughs> I, might, I might have. That's so good. <laughs> that's something I would do. Yeah. I've said that before. I've said a word and like my friend laughs at me and just like, oh, I could tell you learned that from a book. And I've never heard it in uh -huh. the wild because that's not how you say it. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, everything like, I, you know, ever since I left high school, it's all been learning through books. Yeah, so. I love that. So yeah, I mean, yeah, Darkroom, having that has been really helpful to do some of the shows I've done. If you see those, mm -hmm. some of the shows I've done with the massive, like thousands of images in an yeah. installation cloud kind of thing. I don't think I'd be able to do that if I was like paying someone else to do all those prints mm -hmm. for me. It's like really helpful to just be able to bang them out yourself and some of my shows I've had when I had like a big, like I knew I wanted to do X amount, X project. I would hire my friend. I mean, my friend, Dennis McGrath, who is also a great photographer and has a couple books out. He would come, I mean, I would hire him as my darkroom printer and he would just come over and I'd be like, here's my list for today. And he would just wow. spend all day in the darkroom while, while I was working on other stuff, working on Toy Machine. That's the only time I've ever had an assistant was someone to help me print. It's a fun yeah, gig. Yeah. Because you have, I mean, just seeing videos of your shows, I've never had the I've never had the chance to come see one of your shows because I'm on the East Coast, but I just love those clusters that you do like when you have, and there was another thing too that, because you know, I, I, it was an interview or something that I saw, I can't remember where I saw it, but you were, I love this series of photos where it's like a black and white photo and then you add the color to yeah. it. 
yeah. it. Like you paint the color on it. And it just like, it kind of gave me a push to start like manipulating prints and stuff like that. Because, you know, why there's always snobs in every <laughs> little side of things that are like, you can't do that, you know? And it's like, come on, dude, I let me do that. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I remember reading or being hearing some photography lecture where they yeah, where they poo-pooed it so hard mm-hmm. like about doing anything to your print. Or like it was someone criticizing I mean like Jim Goldberg got savage when his first books came out people were saying like this isn't photography if you need to have an explanation written on the print then it's not a good photograph and i was like it's the opposite yeah Yeah. i was like wow of course you're shooting for that cardi rissan epic print or epic photograph you know that doesn't need any explanation but what do you do with all those photos which inevitably everyone has which it's a cool photo but it needs something else Mm-hmm. And you look at Robert Frank as the per- first example of this. I mean, Robert Frank after the Americans, if you look at Lines in My Hand, for instance, and subsequent books uh, coming and going or storylines, I mean, he was he was manipulating his photographs. He was doing taking negatives and scratching on them and making prints. He was writing on the prints. He was painting on the prints. Jim Goldberg was a direct, in, like what Robert Frank was doing post-Americans was a direct influence on Jim Goldberg. Mm. Probably not so much Peter Beard, but I remember seeing Peter Beard and Jim Goldberg around the same time, discovering those two photographers and just being blown away at like what else is possible with photography. You know, it's like you can take a great photo and obviously make it different. You can take a not so great photo and give it context through having some text on it. Even a crappy photo with like some cool paint or colors like can be something. Totally change it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just realized like, oh, there's like, I'm approaching this as an artist and not I'm not stuck in this like stuffy photography world. I'm like, you know, I'm, yeah, there's a blending. I mean, like I said, I started painting when I was 18 as well. So everything we're talking about now, I was also, I've also been painting this whole time and drawing and doing exhibitions with that stuff. And so those image cluster shows like the beautiful loser show, for instance, I mean, there's it's paintings, drawings, and photographs all mixed. And a lot of those blend where the photographs have drawings on them and mm-hmm. painting on it. And it's kind of like whatever goes, whatever tells a story is kind of how I saw it. Right. And like art is art. You can't tell somebody <laughs> yeah, like yeah. this isn't art. It's like, mm-hmm. get out of here. <laughs> and I'm just a huge fan of like that kind of stuff. I mean, Jim Goldberg is a huge mm-hmm. influence. and I'm a big fan. And like Boris Mikhailov, who, you know, I almost see him as a contemporary artist rather than a photographer. He's a, he's clearly a photographer as well, but he's like, yeah, you know, he works in series, which is also really interesting. Like He's like, I'm going to shoot this particular series in this particular way or print it in a certain way, you know? So like his series Salt Lake is all filed edges, bigger prints with sepia tone. And then he did a series called At Dusk and From the Ground, which are incredible if you can get your eyes on those. Anyone listening? Yeah, I need to check this stuff out. (laughs) Um, Where he shot with a a panoramic camera. And he's in, I mean, it's kind of crazy because we're talking about Kharkiv, Russia. That's where he's from, which is uh, currently being bombed by oh, Russia. Oh, wow. I mean, Kharkiv, Ukraine, he's from, which is currently a city being bombed, but that's where Boris Mikhailov is from. And a lot of his photographs are shot in Kharkiv. And so, yeah, the at dusk and from the ground was, I think he was walking around shooting from the hip with a with a panoramic camera. Oh, so wow. cool. And then, and then those prints he did from the ground are all sort of a brownish sepia tone. And the ones called at dusk are all toned blue. And I oh, think wow. in the show, he like hung him at a certain level. So you had to bend over to look at him. But, you know, it's an, like in, that all that stuff has been so influential to me. Like, okay, he's like 
taking a photo series and then tweaking it even further where he yeah. present, he chooses a whole different way where he presents it, which looks completely different from another body of work because which he might have done shot color photos or printed a different way. And then the way he hung it, everything about it is a statement and a piece and a story that he's telling, you know, it's like making and then, an yeah, experience. Like a, yeah. And it's incredible. I mean, he did like a, a series called, uh, I think it's called Red, where like all the photo, it's color photographs, but all are connected through the color red. Mm. His famous body of work is called Case History, which is, you know, point post perestroika, you know, the Soviet Union dissolves and a semi-capitalistic society comes up, which means all the people that were held up by a certain safety net are now cut loose. Mm. And so he saw this explosion of extreme poverty where people were just literally yeah. dying in the streets wow. of hunger and extreme homelessness and poverty. And so he just was like, I'm going to document these people. And he shot it. So it's a really tough series because it's like all insane homeless people. Mm with the most fucked up wounds and stomach problems and issues and he would but he would also get him to like i mean it's really weird a weird series people are very torn by it because it's like semi-exploitative i think he would pay them a little money but he would get them naked so it's like naked homeless people with like oh i know exactly what you're talking about okay i've seen it it's really yeah yeah, it is it's hardcore you know yeah but that's a whole series it's like a thick book you know Mm -hmm. it's just so yeah i mean just the fact that he did all these different series and he's got a series where he printed two photographs on one piece of paper with like colored pencil notes mm. on each one. Wow. Every series is like kind of so different, but then there's also like a thread between them. And that's kind of interesting. And, you know, someone like Araki too, where he's been so playful and experimental with photography. I mean, he does everything. And like, I, I don't know how far you've delved into Araki, but like he has a series where he like cuts Polaroids in half and joins the two halves together. Um, mm-hmm. He's got one where he rips Polaroid pack film photos apart and then shows them with the rip between them. It's like slides, you know, so many different ways of showing work. You know, he's done, he's done a series where it's two photos on one sheet of paper. I just love that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I have all these plans to do, uh, to do work like this. You know, it's like I'm working on wires cross right now. So everything's on the back burner, but you know, yeah, I have like future series where I want to do photos where I join two photos because as someone who shoots as much as I do, there's just so much work yeah so many stories and like photo like photo nerd stuff that i want to like get out there with the work i have you know and it's all about looking back it's like it's so weird it's like i've never understood this like new i want to shoot a new series it's like everything i've done has been kind of looking back yeah at what i've already got and like even wires cross now by the time that's gone from when i conceived the idea in 94 to now (laughs) wow has gone through all these iterations and stuff. I, I, I love the, the like pushing the envelope when it comes to this stuff too. You know, Definitely. like you were saying, yeah. like a lot of people get hung up and like, well, it has to be, you know, you have to get it in camera and this and that and this and that. And it's like, well, I'm going to draw on my photos, you know, like I just yeah. I love it. But it's a time capsule now. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Wires Cross is a time capsule. So essentially, you know, I'm going to say on the title page, it's like, this is skateboarding for me yeah. between 95 and 2012, you know? So here yeah. we are. And I love those books. I love time capsules you know yeah. a lot of people's books are that without really stating it it is a time capsule mm-hmm. every mark steinmetz book is essentially like a time capsule i shot these photos between 80 you know 85 and 95 and that's you know so you're looking at a time period and jim does that too i remember hearing a jim goldberg talk and he's just like i've got work that i've made a f- i've completely printed it's like ready to go and it's in a box and no one's ever seen it you know it's that's like what i have geez. a bunch of that too yeah. i have just stuff i've been sitting on for a while All right, so we're splitting this episode into two. First off, we want to thank Ed for coming on the show. This has been a blast, and we can't wait for you to hear the second part of the show, which we will be releasing next week. But 
If you are a Patreon, you can listen to the full two-hour conversation over there on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash analog talk. We have a bunch of stuff over there. Check it out. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks again, Ed, for coming on the show. This was great. We'll see you next week with some more of our conversation with Ed. Until then, take care, guys. Keep shooting, and we'll see you soon. Later.